Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. to the good people and welcome to another episode of a fork in time podcast i like how i worked that into the very beginning without even having somebody throw uh throw to me uh this is chris capola i am joined by eric rush do you want to say an introduction eric hi to the good people all right um so today we're going to build more on this eisenhower ball of wax that I think we've all really fallen in love with this. I think we've really, you know, have all really found this pretty interesting. Um, And thank you, Eric, for, I don't know, providing the medical bona fides for us to go down this route. Um, So today's episode, we kind of thought, or I had the idea that this would be the foreign policy episode. This would be dealing with, the United States in the world. And then we sat down and decided that that was a little ambitious in and of itself. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there, there's a lot, you know, th- this is a really busy time in, in U S history. And, and I think there's a, there's a lot going on both in domestic and foreign policy. And I, and, you know, Chris, you and Dylan and, and Don did a great job with the domestic policy and, I think it's just it's a ripe topic for discussion of foreign policy between and I think we decided between about 1956 and 1960 something 63 ish kind of 63 ish. Yeah, but but the other thing is there's there's this really interesting interconnectedness of topics. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is this at least the foreign policy topics we're thinking about today were a little more Euro slash Soviet centric. Sure. There is, there's more coming in the third world and, and we're not going to tease. We're not going to tell you which country, but uh, the country that you're all thinking about right now, isn't going to make it into this one. So Um, keep keep listening. Yes. Yes. Come back to that one. Uh, Hopefully I won't have to call anybody out like I did on the last episode by name, making sure Eric would be involved in this episode for the, well, just the space so race it, portion. <laughs> and so if I could have a brief aside, like I, w- yeah. I was planning on being on the record tonight, but um, if I had any <laughs> trepidation or any conflict about being involved in, in, in tonight's episode, I was listening on my, on my uh, daily constitutional. And uh, I was, I was listening to it and Chris was very kind to like, to call me out and say, you know, and by the way, I know Eric Rush is going to be there for this next episode. And I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to be there for that. Um, so it was good. And, and so, of course, we're going to make sure that the part he's specifically here for is at the very end. So you have to listen to everything else to get there. Right. <laughs> so going through our timeline, the first big issue comes almost immediately after the passing of Eisenhower in what we determined was 55, right? 
so it would be it would be been fifty six. Okay, if, if I remember right. So okay, in nineteen fifty six, he had a very large. Um, well, hmm, that's a good question. It, he had several heart attacks. Okay, and so we we could pick one, and so we could pick anywhere between about September of fifty five and we'll call it June of fifty six. Okay, constitutionally, it does not matter. You know, in in all those cases, then over half the term had been served, and so Vice President Nixon was both able to take over to take power as president, but then also to run for two terms uh, and in his own right. So that's that is important, and so um, so my reading. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Call it a June fifty six. Yeah, uh, September. I, here's the problem with a well. Well, um, okay, let's call it June because I, I, I see where you're going next, and that's actually important. So let's call it June. Well, where 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 do you think? Because I don't know. I I had a really weird one going next, but what 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 what's your issue? Well, I think it has to do with sort of some some post heart attack complications. Okay. And so like I'm putting my alternate history cap off, like mm-hmm. I'm taking it off and I'm and I'm looking at this entirely as a physician. Um so I I don't know that there is necessarily a bright line, so I think you could easily pick anywhere between September 55 and probably up until a few weeks before election day of 56. Okay. And I think you'd be in pretty fertile ground there. The, the the reason I was saying June 56 is this. Mm-hmm. This is a different time somewhat in American politics. Yeah. Um, there are no presidential primaries for the, or there may be some for the uh, 1956 presidential election. But Eisenhower is not formally nominated until the actual Republican convention. Which, which was in August, right? Right. Mm, that's that, okay. Interesting. <laughs> so, okay, I'm on board with this. So it, let's say it's 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 June. I, I I by the way, I promise we're gonna get to foreign policy. I promise we're getting out of this domestic stuff. <laughs> we are at getting some there. point. Well, um, and so and so to the <laughs> listeners, like Chris and I had a very extensive, you know, pre podcast um, discussion, and it was great. Like, oh, I loved it. It was wonderful. Uh, it was wonderful. But but like but there's a there's so many things that are transparent to you as the listeners that that happen behind the scenes. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do the the, the live stream with YouTube because you know to me that's fun. And I think you know, Chris and I always have a really fun time doing that. Um, so let's call it June of 1956 let's say okay. he dies and whether it's another heart attack or whether it is a different complication such as bowel obstruction okay which he did have okay and so there you know there's a number of things that happened to uh, to Eisenhower all of which in 1956 were had a pretty significant mortality rate okay in 2022 not as high but in 1956 high mortality rate so let's just say for argument's sake, and because it works out with it, with our timeline, mm-hmm. he passes in June of 56. Okay. And so what do you do? You have a sitting vice president in Richard Nixon, who is a person that we know very well in this podcast. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and so then he needs to be nominated. And so in August of 56, presumably, and I actually feel very confident. And I, I don't know what your thoughts are, are, but I think in this instance, I think Nixon would get the nomination in a cakewalk in 56 with those circumstances. I think he does too, because he is the sitting president yeah. under this scenario. He is the vice president, you know, elected vice president who is the sitting president. And if we if we want to invoke very early parts in our country, at worst, he's acting president. You know, that, okay. you know, this happened in um, after William Henry Harrison died. You know, there was a an acting president. Mm-hmm. Constitutionally, I don't know that that really matters. Um, and by by 1953 or or 1956, it clearly doesn't matter. So Nixon is the president. Right. And he wins the election in 1956 in a cakewalk against somebody. I mean, Adlai Stevenson, mm-hmm. who, you know, you know, for argument's sake. Well, again, you know, that's the other thing about this happening in June. Everything else has been leading up to our timeline. So I don't know if any if the Democratic convention is radically different. That it wasn't ours. Um, so I, I think the answer to that is no. Right, right. Because because it was such a shock. Right. Um, however, right up right until that election is 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 a month that we did talk about, and it's it's almost my favorite month in history. I I, I love this month because you have two huge crisis crisis crises 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 that really do generate from completely different factors and it just so happens they blow up during the exact same week um so do you want to deal with the first one, Eric, or or your personal favorite one of the two? Um, go ahead with yours, and I'll go ahead with mine. Okay. Um, the the biggest one, or, or the, the 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 one that gets a lot of the press, is the Suez Crisis of 1956, and this was basically an attempt by Israel, Great Britain, and France to overthrow Nasser in Egypt, who had started making friendly noises to the Soviets, who had been accepting Soviet aid, who was starting to go that route. What happened is Israel used some cross-border raids as a provocation to invade the Sinai, uh, to go right up to the Suez Canal. The British and the French then stepped in and said, we need to have a ceasefire. We will go in to enforce a ceasefire. The thing is, from the very beginning, the Israelis were working with the British and French to cause the crisis, which would justify them taking over the Suez. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And And, and then the other important thing is, in our timeline, Eisenhower in the United States 
knew about it ahead of time, had told them this was a bad idea, and publicly worked with the Soviet Union to isolate these three nations and to basically force Britain and France to withdraw from the canal. Right. Correct. Okay. No, I, I think that's right. And and I and there is a, a part of me, you know, and again, I you know, I'm an American that feels like there was a a little bit of motivated reasoning to um humble the British and French. Um, you know, because it was a new world order. Mm-hmm. You know, this was a a a, a bit of a Pax Americana. And and so I think the there was a sense that we needed the British and French to understand who is really running things. And the other thing, and we'll deal with this in our next foreign policy Eisenhower episode more so. I think this was an attempt by the United States to secure some anti-colonial bona fides that we didn't stick with. Mm -hmm. If we would have stuck with that policy of encouraging national self-determination in the third world, I think that that changes a lot of things. Um, But we'll get to that in another episode. The other thing that happens at exactly the same time is the Hungarian rising, the Budapest uprising of 1956, which was one of, there were others, but one of the first major efforts by nations on the other side of the Iron Curtain to expel or to renegotiate the deal with the Soviet Union. Sure. Um, the United States, through Radio Free Europe, made statements that if you rise, we will support you. And then we didn't. And that, you know, really basically established a U.S. policy of respecting the Iron Curtain in Europe. Is that is that a fair statement? Oh, I, I think that's <laughs> absolutely fair. Um, how does Nixon change those two policies, those two events? Oh God, you know, gosh, I, I think Chris, <laughs> I I don't think Nixon's policy inside the the Iron Curtain would change all that much. Okay, I think Nixon would very much still respect the Iron Curtain. And, okay. But I also think Nixon would feel a little more empowered than Kennedy did. So if we you know we can look at this a couple of different ways, we can look at this as Nixon in fulfilling the second half of, of the, the Eisenhower term. Mm-hmm. And we can look at this as Nixon in the early 1960s. And so I think Nixon in the in the late 1950s in the second half of Eisenhower's term is going to be very much a continuation of that policy. Okay. And and you know that includes a a um, an anti-communist stance that had some nuance because Eisenhower had to prove nothing to anybody, mm-hmm. and you know it is 2022, and Eisenhower still has nothing to prove to anybody. He is Dwight Eisenhower. 
He was he is he is the general who led the the invasion in Normandy. Like he will forever be honored in the annals of American history. And that's not undeserved. And so there is a lot of uh, there's a lot about Eisenhower that is never going to be second guessed. Whereas Nixon had some of those coattails, but he also had some very clear bona fides as an anti-communist. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever doubted Nixon as being anti-communist ever. And so then you had uh, what that gives you is not a hardline policy because Eisenhower nor Nixon were hardliners. They were mainstream conservatives. Whereas Kennedy was a, we'll call him a moderate progressive. I, you know, Kennedy was a bit of a chameleon. I don't know that we really know um, other than his rhetoric, what Kennedy's policy was, but you know, he, uh, so let's let's uh, let's assume a few things, and let's assume that that uh, that Eisenhower and, and Nixon were you know ardently anti-communist, and everybody agreed with this. So Kennedy had to react against that mm-hmm. and be more anti-communist and be less nuanced than. Mm-hmm. Nixon or Eisenhower did. And so I think in in the case of the Nixon administration in the late 1950s, 1960s, I think you have a President Nixon who was much more empowered to make nuanced policy, not because it plays to the press and not because it makes him look like a a more dedicated anti-communist, because he didn't need that, but because he felt like that's what needed to be done. And and I say this, I am no Nixon supporter, but I still think this is true, that I think Nixon would, would give the ability for a more nuanced response to this incursion of the Iron Curtain. What about the other incident? What about what would Nixon be doing during the Suez crisis? What would would that have been a different role than the Eisenhower role? Um, I don't know that it would, you know, I, I, I think that the U S state department and the government at large saw Suez as an opportunity. And that opportunity was to, um, was to, to, to make the Western European allies understand that they are subordinate within NATO to the US. And I say this with apologies to any any sort of European friends who are listening, but I really think that part of Suez was a deliberate humiliation against the British and French Mm -hmm. because they wanted to make sure that they stayed in the fold. Okay. And, you know, because they weren't going to go to the Warsaw Pact. Like that was not going to happen. The worst that would happen is they would go the Austria or Ireland route and be neutral. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there was a an aspect of this that was part of shaming the UK and France into coming in line with the US. Say, you know, you went too far this time. You went too okay. far. And so you need to come back. And that may have been true for the Israelis as well. But I, but I also think like so much of our of our contact with the Israelis is, I'm going to call it under the table, okay. And that may be a bit unfair, 
you know, but, but so, but we'll just say um, more subtle negotiations with our Israeli friends. Okay. Just thinking about the basic plan here. I, I thought I looked at it and said that that's got Nixon all over it. This is the, if the British and French didn't come up with this, this is the kind of thing that a Nixon would have come up with. And Mm -hmm. even given, you know, his experience in our timeline, he didn't necessarily draw and respect borders. So uh, I, I think I agree. Uh, so okay, I agree with Chris. I think that's a that's a really interesting mm-hmm. perspective. And so, what would that look like? I think what that what that looks like is the linkage of these two things. Okay, the linkage of, of these two crises. The reason, by the way, militarily, the British and French were able to go in and they did occupy Suez. The reason this fell apart and the reason this failed is because the Soviet Union and the United States cooperated at the United Nations to basically apply the political pressure that made their position untenable. True. Nixon is a horse trader. He is a man that makes deals. And I think in this circumstance, there is a linkage between Suez and Hungary. I can see I that. Think, I think Nixon, even if he has no intention of actually encouraging a Hungarian uprising, I think giving that up to the Soviets communicating to the Soviets that this will not be our policy. You will have a free hand here as long as you give us a free hand in Egypt. I think that is, that's a very Nixonian thing to do. So I think in our timeline, it's a possibility that he communicates with Khrushchev and makes a deal, gives up something, which by the way, we both agreed he had no use for, he had no intention of actually encouraging Hungary to break away. Agreed. But you know what? You might as well get something for giving it up. Um, I think that is entirely possible with Nixon. I agree, Chris. I think the wrinkle is, is what would that be? Like, what, what is that? And how would Nasser react to that? I think Nasser is rem- in our timeline. Mm-hmm. Nasser is about as well known as Mossadegh. Mm, okay. Um, I think because even you know in our timeline, Nasser is brilliant, and he is brilliant for playing the superpowers off against each other. And very much... Particularly the British. He is largely the person who wags the dog. He does. He does. He plays the two superpowers off, but in this circumstance, he's left holding the bag by the Soviets. 
Well, by the Soviets and Americans, if you know, depending on in, in this timeline. But in, in in this case, the Americans are supporting the British and French. Well, okay. So I should say And the Soviets hang him out to dry in exchange for the free hand in Hungary. True. Okay. That's that totally fair. Totally fair. And 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 I think that is uh that will prompt a very different Middle East in, yes. in the rest of the you know 50s, 60s, 70s. Yes. I I I think that's a really interesting discussion removing Nasser at this point. The thing we haven't discussed is what's re- what replaces him. Nasser? Ooh. Yes. Um in Egypt? In well, Egypt and 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 that is going to determine a lot of other things. So in Egypt, it's always going to be the military. Okay. Whenever there is a, a political leader that is deposed or mm-hmm. it's um, unsustainable in some ways, either overtly or covertly, the military has stepped in. Okay. Because the, you know, the army in Egypt is very well respected. And I think in some ways for very good reasons. And so I think you have a, I think you have a, a military takeover of Egypt if, if the situation becomes an, an, an untenable. So we pick another colonel because keeping in mind, Nasser has only been there about three years. Yeah, but in, sure. in whatever capacity. Yep. I do think the United States, and this is important, the United States does play a bigger role in picking the successor because. The British, having already, you know, having having recently been very involved there, were very close to the old king. True, and and at this point, the prime minister is Anthony Eden, who mm-hmm. is very affluent Arabic speaker, mm-hmm. who is very interested in, in Middle Eastern affairs, mm-hmm. and and so I think you know the 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 resolution of that in favor of Britain, but also in favor of the area with somebody who understands the politics and culture better is dependent on him being around for a while. Okay. Which in our, in our timeline, he wasn't, you know, he, he had a lot of, um, Eden. He had a lot of, of, okay. uh, uh, of, um, liver and gallbladder issues and mm-hmm. ended up getting his gallbladder removed in the U.S. when he was okay. on, on, a, on a visit. So Anthony Eden had a lot of health problems and he was a younger guy and, mm-hmm. yeah, um, but was, uh, but had a lot of issues that, that really, I think diluted his ability to be effective. Okay. So to chase this a little bit further, we have another Colonel. Yeah. Um, What does that do to the core relationship between both Egypt and the West and Egypt and Israel? So I think that the impact on Egypt and the West and Egypt and Israel, and I would even say I would fold Israel into the West. Okay. And, and, you know, because there is... um, you know, I, 
I feel like, and I, well, in many ways, I hope that the U.S. has a um, kind of pro-Israel and pro-Jewish sentiment to it mm-hmm. overall. Um, and so I, I, my hope is that you would pick a, a successor, your, your new colonel that would be acceptable to the U.S., but also acceptable specifically to the UK, France, and Israel. Okay. And so you have a you have a person who is military, but is also pro-democratic okay. and is liberal-ish at the very least. Or what we would understand is is as liberal-ish, which is probably politically middle of the road for us, but at least understands and respects the policies and the tradition of of liberal democracy i think it'd be very easy to get that you know to to want that person like who that person is i don't know i i mean in my mind i would i would just use the name of sadat well okay so we can talk about sadat especially because he was somebody who had kind of realized by the time he does come in how destructive the Soviet relationship had been. And he came in and very much wanted to make peace from the very beginning, from the moment he took over. So I, by the way, I don't think that the West would have been troubled with anything you just said in terms of respect for liberal democracy, in terms of anything like that. And we want somebody who is going to secure the canal. Yeah, um, totally. And well, and, and I'm, you know, I love, you know, we are not unbiased here on mm-hmm. a fork in time. Like at, at the, at the end of like, I am an American mm-hmm. who is, who is very pro liberal democracy. Like that is who I am. Like, and, and so I, I am always going to, you know, side with that. And, and, and we don't get political. Like I, I I'm not trying to give away like my R or D behind my name or anything like that. But, but just to say that I, I you know, I am an American who embraces liberal democracy and self-determination. And so when I, when I say things like that, or when I talk about those things like that, like I am absolutely allowing my bias to shine forth and i and that's fine like Mm -hmm. bias isn't bad Mm -hmm. it's just as long as we call it out as long as we understand what it is and call it out like it's okay and and that you know we we have a very savvy listenership and i trust the listenership to to you know to listen to me and say yeah this is legit or this is not Mm -hmm. like yeah, I agree. I I agree with Eric or, you know, or like this rush turkey is like he's off, you know, he's off the rails. Like, mm-hmm. that's OK. That's all OK. Um, so I think they do put in a kernel. I think they put in a kernel. They build the dam. Uh, they actually approve uh, it. I think they I think they build the dam. I think mm-hmm. that was inevitable at that point. And the other interesting thing is. Do they break the three no's? Which are? No negotiation, no recognition, no peace with Israel. Um, I, 
I, I always like if this idea of the West kind of deciding, listen, we're going to use Egypt as a case example of what happens if you play ball with us. We're going to build projects for them. We're going to provide them support. Again, they do not have the other Soviet involvement, so they can't wag us. But we can use Egypt as a case study. And by the way, since this is so early in the process, you don't have decades of the people in charge in Egypt using Israel as a boogeyman. Yeah, that's true. Very true. So I I think it's distinctly possible you have a treaty um, recognizing the state and Egypt gets the Sinai back. Uh, uh, okay, I, I, I can get behind that. And so you have, yeah. So you have a, a, a Camp David Accords mm-hmm. essentially in 1956. I'm gonna I'm gonna say like 58, 59, because there's some processes so that need to play out here. It's gonna take a minute. Yeah. So but but earlier. So you've got a um very got, much earlier. You've got a Camp David Accords that were negotiated by Carter in the mm-hmm. 70s. That were yes. instead navigated by Nixon in the mm-hmm. late 50s. Yes. That is not nothing. Like, that is a pretty big deal. That is huge. It's a pretty big deal. It, that- it, it, especially because thinking about what Nasser meant to the Arab world. Yes. And thinking about what does that do, you know. Obviously, there's no six-day war. We're a very different conflict. Um, <laughs> probably not. I mean, I'm just I'm I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the ferocity of the six-day war mm-hmm. and and what an existential crisis that was for Israel. Mm-hmm. And and um, if they've got peace on the Sinai. That then they've got one of their fronts totally mm-hmm. covered that they don't have to worry about. And and I, I look at this and mm-hmm. you know I look at this also in the idea like at this point mm-hmm. Israel probably had nuclear weapons. By the way, just to be perfectly clear, at what point? Well, so we're seeing 67, 73. They, that we think okay, they, okay, and, and they're undeclared. And like, for anybody, like all the people from the U.S. State Department that are listening to this podcast, like I have no inside knowledge, and I'm not a spy for anybody. But um, I'm they pretty, do. I'm pretty certain by '67, Israel has nuclear weapons. But and and I think their decision to not deploy them in our current timeline was narrow. I think it was a very close call. I agree with you in the context of 73. Well, okay. So I'll put I'll put it 73. I think 67 or 73 could 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 play in. I, I, I think in 67 
I agree that they had that capability. But the fact is, from would have appointed at that point. From the very beginning of '67, things were going their way. Okay, so okay, so '73 things were not going their way as much for sure, right? And so we'll we'll just say that that was that was more likely that that they would employ it at that point. Okay, I I can get behind that, Chris. I can get behind that. And, And and the other interesting thing is you also have the role of Jordan as a relatively pro-Western monarchy. Now we just have Syria as, I mean, if you've got Egypt that has peace, Jordan very quickly makes peace. Yeah. Because they're not worried about the Arab street. Maybe you actually do not have an occupation. Mm Mm-hmm. And have a lasting two-state solution. <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, I mean, that would solve a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. By the way, listeners at home, this is not... Looking at the list, this was like the first of like four things we were going to talk about. But we got a really interesting one done, I think. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a several-part episode. But, I mean... okay. The good news is for everybody who's listening, like there's a lot to keep Chris and I out of trouble for the next few weeks. <laughs> um, so let's let's get to the the next you know huge thing we were thinking about. Cuba. Cuba. Okay. You and I have already done Cuba episodes, but but we but have. just to just to just to breeze through it. Not in this way. Um, no. So you had, um, you had Batista, um, Mm -hmm. and and Batista was, was in charge of Cuba until the late 1950s. And then we initially supported Castro. Yes. Um, for in in the U S you know, because he had, um, he seemed to resolve some issues that we had had with Cuba Mm -hmm. and yet he created so many more. Mm -hmm. And so would we have reacted differently in a different administration? And a lot of this happened under Eisenhower. You know, so you had Eisenhower that was in our current timeline until 1961. And so would that first couple of years of Cuba have been different under a President Nixon? And I think the answer is essentially no. I think Nixon would have reacted very similarly to to Cuba. I think he might have asked for a few more assurances. From Castro for the support? Yes. Okay. And and because I think, you know, I think Eisenhower comes at this from a very, Eisenhower's a big picture guy. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he was a five-star general. Like he, he you know, he uh, you know supported and uh, and uh, administered a lot of different uh, different people. And so I think he was a big picture guy. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's there's a lot less detail that that you know you know Eisenhower needed compared to Nixon. And I think some of this is personality between Eisenhower and Nixon, and some of this is is sort of like. Um, some of this is training. So like, you know, Eisenhower, five-star general in the U.S. Army. Nixon, 
a lieutenant commander in the Navy. And so when you're when you're a lieutenant commander, like you are much more focused on the day to day and the Mm -hmm. detail. And so I think that's where Nixon would be focused. I think he would look at this far more in the detail than, than Eisenhower did. And and so you might end up with a with a somewhat different Cuba. Do I think it's going to be radically different? No. Do I think that Batista was a viable leader of Cuba? No. But you might have ended up with a much more pan-nationalistic Castro. Okay. As opposed to a communist Castro. And well, and and let's let's even say Che Guevara too. So let's say, let's say the whole you know kind of the whole the whole group there. Let's say that that we you know we are looking at this from the perspective of being anti-Batista. Mm-hmm. You know that's a big camp. There's a there are a lot of reasons to like not like Batista, and most of them are not communism. Okay. And so you know let's say that the, that the U.S. government leans into some of those. And so. Are you saying in the immediate aftermath of Castro's takeover, mm-hmm. Castro still takes over? I think Batista is done by okay. late 58. Okay. And so I think I, I think a Castro or somebody like Castro at that point is inevitable. Okay. So in the immediately post-revolutionary or post- takeover period you think the united states tries to influence castro to sideline guevara and other more revolutionary aspects yeah maybe i could see that okay i could see that you know where where i think the line comes Mm mm-hmm the line comes in 1960-61 when the United States implements its anti-Castro operation with full force and without any of the strictures put on it by the, in our timeline, Kennedy administration. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hate to be the dark one. I hate to be, no, I, I feel like you're always, oh, we're gonna go and establish liberal democracies. And I'm like, cool, overthrow them, go in and just bomb them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and this is my bias. Like it, it's hard for me to not let my my like mm-hmm. my bias show. And my bias my biases is like I want the whole world to be a liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean the liberal in the, you know, the, the U.S. progressive standpoint. I just mean in the general self-determination. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, like, I am an American. I I grew up in the United States. I've been in the United States my whole life. I have a very strong democratic tradition. And so, yeah, it, so Chris <laughs> is right. Like, I'm always going to have this, like, liberal democracy <laughs> bias because that is my bias. Because I think the world is better that way. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just coming at this from a... You're just saying sometimes it doesn't work out that way. 
I mean, we're, 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 we're talking about the president that did like Allende coup. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. 15 years later. Like, no, you're right. This you're is right. not a consideration for the man. Just being no, honest. I, I get it. I get it. Well, and Chris, you are often my gut check on on this to like be like, you know, Eric, the sometimes the thing that you want to happen doesn't always happen. Like, and and like and I and I have to acknowledge, like, yep, you're right about that, Chris. Sometimes it doesn't happen. So but you do you agree that like which of those two things do you think soft pressure on Castro or does he say thank you that's nice and keep going ahead um I, it's Nixon you know Nixon is, <laughs> and and you know Nixon is always going to be a blunt instrument and uh, I don't even say this as being a person who is entirely anti-Nixon like mm-hmm. This may be heresy among our readership. I am not completely anti-Nixon. There are some good things about Nixon. There are some things he did as president that are really good. Mm-hmm. And so, like I, so I, you know, on balance, I am not pro-Nixon, but like I am nuanced in that approach. And and I, you know, and I understand sort of who he is. And so I, I think he would, in this case, he'd take hard line. Because I also think he's he is a president who does not want communist influence ninety miles off of Florida, mm-hmm. and you know what? Neither do I. So we probably overthrow Castro in sixty one. Probably, I could see a, a well. So sixty is election year. Yes, and it, it is a a transition of administrations from Eisenhower to Kennedy. So in ours, in, in our timeline. But but the reason I say sixty one is generally, I think largely the policy and the development of the Cuban Revolution totally follows fair. our timeline. Totally fair. But 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 I I would say from a from a purely pragmatic standpoint, it's mm-hmm. also in this timeline as opposed to the the current timeline, it is a a, a an administration inflection point. Okay. So in in the alternate timeline, there is no inflection point. It is a re-election of Richard Nixon and a continuation of administration policies. That comes with a lot of administration, administrative inertia. Okay. Any sort of operations such as a Bay of Pigs Mm -hmm. will be able to proceed accordingly as compared to an administrative transition between Eisenhower and Kennedy that we experienced within our timeline, which was not entirely smooth. And and that's the point is that transition went in and started changing that initial plan. It wasn't. And and I don't even think it was abnormal. Like I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't even think the transition between, you know, Nick or Eisenhower and Kennedy was unusual, but it was a transition. And and then I think you know you had transitions between you know, um, so I think you had between Johnson and Nixon, and then mm-hmm. between, you know Ford and Carter, and Carter and Reagan. And I would say that those, as far as I can tell, were fairly normal transitions. Mm-hmm. You you know it was a it was a relatively even even considering political party, it was a relatively seamless transition of power within the U.S. Mm-hmm. 
this is the optimal way our, our system is designed. And so we hope that the and and we have no reason to suspect that that you know in in you know 1965 would we think this would happen that it would happen any, any differently. So I, I think we have a we have a pretty seamless 1961. It was very different. I, I think so. The operation proceeds as it was originally planned. Castro is overthrown, and yep. Cuba becomes. Um, a U.S. vassal, mm -hmm. either you know de facto or de jure, you know it, it. You know it becomes our possession as it once was. I mean, thinking about sixty-five, it's a very little known event, but the invasion of the Dominican Republic in sixty-five. True, we went in and played this in a couple of different countries, and I think we had done it in Cuba plenty. Um, the key is if we remove Castro in 61, there is no missile crisis. Now, here's an interesting question, which, 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 which comes to mind now. And I promise we didn't discuss this off podcast. So we're about to get a hot take on this. Okay. Um, there's no missile crisis in 63. Khrushchev has a handshake agreement with Nixon recognizing the Iron Curtain. Does Khrushchev politically survive after 65? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I actually have some feelings about this. Yeah. So, so I feel like the, the missile crisis really crippled Khrushchev. Yes. And so I think he survives a while longer in a way that losing losing a cube that he doesn't even necessarily have doesn't yeah and so if you, nobody if you is standing a, up in the Politburo accusing Khrushchev as being the man that lost us Cuba right and so I think you you have you have a number of people who were essentially nationalists mm -hmm. and so we can talk about Castro I would I would talk about Ho Chi Minh here too, mm -hmm. who were not ardent capitalists, but who were nationalists mm -hmm. for their own people. And so I think you in 1958 to 1960, 61, I think it is a pitched battle for who Fidel Castro is. Okay. And so at that point, earlier on, I don't think you have necessarily the idea that a Khrushchev would lose Cuba. I think Cuba was considered up for grabs. You know, I think that is it is later in 62 after it is apparent that Cuba has been. And I'm going to use the word seized, but that's not okay. a fair word. We'll just say power has been consolidated by Castro okay. by 62, that the loss of Cuba would then be felt and would be a political handicap to Khrushchev. Right. So I agree, Chris. I think with there, if there is a an early takeover of Cuba and there is no Cuban missile crisis, I think Khrushchev survives for a while longer. What is that? I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean 1970? 
it's possible okay um you know but 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 a while longer and so then you have the idea is there a leaded brezhnev that results in the 70s um as a, as a function of that and and i i don't know if that's true you know i think you know by the time khrushchev would be would be forced to step down because eventually he would be would he? that's Th- that's the think about this khrushchev and gorbachev were the only two soviet leaders to not leave office feet first that is true <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking i'm thinking about this and and you are you're exactly right and and i think in some ways that was by design okay and so i think you i think you had khrushchev and i think you had brezhnev and then you and then you had andropov and chernenko who i think were both designed to die in office ineffectually okay i i i don't i don't think either of them was designed to be in any way contributory to any sort of agenda okay and as it turns out they really didn't i mean i think you had you know so brezhnev Bre- brezhnev and died in what 82 yeah and i think Gor- gorbachev took over at 85 yes and so you have three-ish years and you had two soviet premieres within that time and and I'm going to challenge you to this, Chris, because, you know, you know more about this stuff than, you know, almost 100 percent of the population. Like, tell me about what Khrushchev and Andropov did in that in that three years that was substantive, that was substantive. Like, tell me about their their policies. So. Khrushchev does have substantive substantive policies. No, Shinyanko and Andropov. I, I, I said Khrushchev, <laughs> I, I said Khrushchev. I meant Chernenko and Andropov. So tell me about any of their policies. Um, their policies were just a continuation of Brezhnev. Brezhnev, anti-Stalinization. So there, you know, no, I don't think it was de-Stalinization. I think, in a way, it was almost re-Stalinization because they were from. From a dynamic confronting the West, pounding his shoe on his table, Khrushchev. Okay, okay, okay. I can see that. In that they, these other people had survived Stalin in very much that, that sense that if you're a nail that sticks out, you get your head cut off. True. So... I think those Soviet leaders were very similar to Chinese leaders between Mao and Xi Jinping, where there is kind of a culture of collective leadership. There may be somebody in charge. Somebody has to be the name, but things move very slowly. And there is a consensus within the Politburo before any decisions happen. But but the big issue, like we talked about with Khrushchev, is if there's no Cuba, he survives, and a Khrushchev in charge 
means different decisions on the part of the Soviet Union than if you do have a Brezhnev in charge. I I completely agree. I think that's right. They were very different personalities. So you have a Soviet Union moving into the 60s, mm-hmm. moving into the later 60s, that is open that is more openly challenging the west yes and so okay chris <laughs> I, I am going to call this our endpoint for the evening and i'm going to say that we have a we have a cruise chef that is setting us up for okay. nice detente in the 70s okay and and so you have a 1970s that is now set up for more conflict. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I and I think it's going to be cold conflict. I don't think it's going to be hot conflict. I think at worst, there's going to be proxy wars. I, I think there's going to be a lot more proxy wars, though. Proxy wars. Yeah, I agree. There's proxy wars. And by, P.S., by the way, is Ronald Reagan is still governor of California. He has not come on to this. Are you saying they're going to invade Berkeley? Or... Uh, (laughs) we should come back to that but okay because i think you have a really interesting setup i think you have a khrushchev still into let's say the early 70s by the way he did die in the early 70s himself yeah so he died in 72 and Mm -hmm. so i we're not going to change that we Um, might move it up a little bit just because between you know his last seven years he's in retirement he's the only per- I, I i hate to say this he seems khrushchev seems a little bit like a like a um like one of those the the the, the one mob boss to actually survive to retirement well it's to a, hand it over he's benedict the 16th he, he actually no, he. I'm not. I'm not. He hands it over and he retires. He's living in a, in a in a dacha, in enjoying that retirement. Um. So yeah. So um. So maybe him still being in charge pushes that date up a little bit into 1970. But even then, those five years are really important and really critical. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I will say like, and I, and I will say this as uh, as a person with the Catholic tradition, that is very much Benedict the 16th to, you know, retire to your dacha, you know, whether that's in Moscow or the, that's in Rome doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. Okay. You know, it is, you know, you, you get to live out your, you know, your dotage in significant comfort. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he, he choose, and so maybe that route is not so bad. But we, you know, in this case, we are making a decision that that will happen very differently. Yes, that that we'll have a, I guess, a Kennedy in '64, and later on a Johnson who are confronting Khrushchev. Right in, and, in and, the late sixties. Well, and I think by that point, uh, presuming our our early well, 
our mid '60s scandal with Kennedy, like this is a Johnson versus Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. And I will be honest: if I have to pick, if I have to pick amongst Nixon, Kennedy, and Johnson to go head to head against Khrushchev, I pick Johnson. He's a horse trader. He's a horse trader. He's been the, he was in the Senate for a million years at that point. Like I agree. He's not, he's not intimidated by anybody. I I agree with that. I think Nixon's a very close second. I'm I thinking about the kitchen. I agree. Debate. And I agree. And I, I don't want to underestimate Nixon. Like Nixon's a very different personality. He's a shrewd negotiator. I think there is a um, a more aggressive stance compared to a more strategic stance amongst the okay. three of them. But I think we can both agree that amongst the three of them, Kennedy is the weakest. Yes. And the interesting thing is, so much of what happens in the 60s, early 60s, with the Berlin crisis and with the missiles in Cuba, is an, to some extent... Khrushchev trying to take advantage of Kennedy, seeing yes. him as weak and pushing him. Well, especially when it comes to some of the discussions in 1961. Mm-hmm. He saw Kennedy as a, as a stuffed shirt. Mm-hmm. And that's not fair. Like, Kennedy was much more than that. And so I, I don't agree with this idea that, um, that you know, Kennedy was a, you know, sort of a non-entity. Mm-hmm. I do think Kennedy was more substantive than that. But having said that, I also think that, you know, both Nixon and and uh, and Johnson would have been more aggressive and productive negotiators. And and so when we come back to this episode. Yes. Because we haven't even finished what we were. Well, first, we're just, first, we cut the entire foreign policy. First, we cut. We're going to have to split this episode because uh, I I need to go to sleep because I have to go to work tomorrow. (laughs) First, first, we cut this the foreign policy down. Then we did cut what we were going to do for foreign policy down to just this. But when we come back to this, here's something we're going to think about. Okay. We still have Khrushchev in power in 1964 through 66. He is still confronting Kennedy for two years. What form does that take? It doesn't take the form of Cuba. No. Berlin is a perennial crisis, so that's always a possibility. Uh, Eastern Europe, hotspots, maybe Central Asia. There's also, you're right, Central, uh, Southern Asia. Mm -hmm. There's an Indo-Pakistani war about now. Correct. There's Congo. Which I think takes there's, on a very different importance. We could do a whole episode on Congo. <laughs> Congo is, you know, the uh, Congo yeah, region, the Congo region is fascinating. Mm-hmm. There are the the leaders are all really nuanced, mm-hmm. and sometimes in a good way, sometimes in not such a good way. But the Congo is a fascinating part of the world. Yeah, yeah. But we will come back to this. So uh, we will. We will. <laughs> I want to encourage everybody to tell us to to provide more gut checks to us, <laughs> if you don't mind. To go on to our Discord server, let us know if you have different thoughts. I've actually seen, as we've been recording this, a couple of thoughts coming in on there. We'd love to hear from you. 
Uh, get involved on the website, a fork in time podcast.com. That's how both of us got involved in this. We'd love to hear from more people. And uh, until next episode, this is Chris and Eric Rush signing off. Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more and provide feedback by visiting our website at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Connect to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash aforkintime or follow us on Twitter at A-F-I-T podcast. If you want to support the show financially, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash aforkintime. We hope you will join us next time.